Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we talked to Sonia Livingston about the way mobile technology is changing the social and educational lives of young people. This week, we hear from a business and science fiction writer whose books investigate the consequences of human-level artificial intelligence on our future society. It would be crazy if we have machines creating all this wealth and we can't somehow find a way to turn that into a great world where humans can get on with the important things in life, which are learning and playing and having adventures and having fun, while the machines do the jobs. That's the voice of Callum Chase, who came into the studio to talk to me about the role of science fiction in mapping out the future and the potential of artificial intelligence to transform human society for both good and evil. Callum, you were a businessman for 30 years and then you almost discovered AI. Uh, Tell us, what did you do in your business career and why have you developed this obsessive interest in AI? In my business career, I was initially a marketer. Uh, And then I went into strategy consulting and did that for 15 years. Who did you work for? I did things in the wrong order. So I started my own firm initially. Then I became a partner in a boutique firm. And then I ended up at KPMG for the last five years. Normally, it's the other way around. And then I went into strategy consulting, actually, because I'd done an MBA. And I thought it would help me find the company I really wanted to work at. And it took 15 years, but it did. But then it turned out it wasn't the right company. And so I spent the last five years of my career as a commercial director and then CEO of a series of small companies. I didn't discover AI towards the end of that. I had always been very interested in the idea that humans would create machines more intelligent than ourselves. And I had that view because I was an avid science fiction reader from a very early age. But I always assumed that it wouldn't happen for thousands of years. And it was reading a man called Ray Kurzweil, who's very controversial, back in 1999, his book, Are We Spiritual Machines? He made me realize, and he's made a lot of people realize, that actually it could happen much, much sooner than we think. So that was a really important turning point for me. I wrote a book, a novel about that idea. And when I retired in 2011, I dedicated myself to reading and writing about that subject. Right. And as you say, you've written a lot of books, both fiction and non-fiction, on this subject. And in particular, you have this lovely phrase that science fiction is philosophy in fancy dress, uh, which I rather like. So, I mean, you both have a kind of abstract academic interest in this, but also a very practical interest as a businessman who is um, seeing how it can be applied. Yes, in a sense, I've got uh, three interest in it. One is the business interest, how AI should be deployed now. Then there's the practical interest in how we as societies and individuals adapt to the remarkable increase in the power of AI, because it creates terrific opportunities and terrific challenges. And then thirdly, yes, you're right, there is the philosophical interest, you know, could machines become conscious? Would a conscious machine have the same rights as a human? Or would it perhaps have more important rights than a human if it became more conscious than us. And what on earth does any of that mean? Right. Let's start with some of the terrific opportunities that you're talking about. I mean, as a businessman, how do you see AI being deployed? So right now, the new form of artificial intelligence, and it's important to make this distinction, there was a big bang in AI in 2012 when Jeff Hinton and some colleagues at Toronto managed to work out how to use machine learning, and in particular a subset of that called deep learning, which is in a sense a rebranding of neural net they managed to work out to apply that in artificial intelligence contexts. Since then, the tech giants in Silicon Valley and increasingly in China have deployed that sort of technology. 
so that Google Translate is frankly fairly miraculous now. Facebook's image recognition algorithms are amazing and the same sort of thing is happening in China. But it is still hard to do this. You need enormous amounts of data, enormous compute power, and you need very smart people who know how to wrangle the algorithms. And it's said that there's only about 10,000 of those in the world. So it hasn't been diversified. It hasn't disseminated through the economy much yet, but it's starting. The tech giants are making tools available. They're also actually increasingly sending consultants out into the business world to show typically larger companies how to deploy it. So we are seeing things like robotic process automation, which often isn't true AI, but sometimes is. And we're seeing chatbots getting smarter and smarter. So these are the sort of the initial stages of it. But increasingly, as the years go by, we're going to see the same technology as enables Google Translate. We're going to see that percolate through the business world, which will make business processes much more efficient. It will make all of our lives more convenient, more comfortable, safer, generally better if we rise to the challenges. So we're stressing at the moment all about the low productivity in developed economies, but you think AI could be a means of significantly increasing the productivity? Yes, although the economist may not notice, because one of the things that happens is that the products and services that are generated become remarkably cheap. So today's cars are vastly better than they were in the 1970s, but they don't cost much more. And that's not captured by economics even more true with digital goods and services. I mean, when I was young, it just wasn't possible to have access to all the music you might ever want to listen to. And now it's £10 a month. And that fantastic increase in productivity is nowhere in the figures. So I I worry about the debate about productivity because I think we may be discussing the wrong thing. Which sectors do you think it's going to most affect? Every sector. There isn't a sector which is going to be immune to this. There isn't an area of life which is going to be immune. And it's a bit of a mugs game, to be honest, to try to guess who's going first, which geographies, which industries. But clearly one of the early ones to be really, really deeply affected will be transportation. You know, we know that self-driving vehicles will be ready for prime time pretty soon. Google's spin-out Waymo seems to be keen to introduce it in the next year or two. The UK government is talking about 2021, but they've not said whether that's just for trials or for prime time deployment. But, you know, self-driving vehicles will be quite common on our roads within 10 years or so. And then human drivers won't be common on our roads. And you think society is going to accept driverless cars within a decade? I do. I mean, all the experience so far of humans being allowed to go into driverless cars is people sit there and are a bit spooked for the first few moments. And then they think it's great. And why wouldn't you? And actually, you know, when you look at the pros and cons of self-driving cars, humans kill 1.2 million people around the year on roads. Road accidents is the number one cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds around the world. We maim another 50 million a year. There is a holocaust going on every year. We should stop it. And we have the technology to stop it now. But no one pretends that self-driving cars are not going to kill people. They'll kill one or two, which will probably be because humans do silly things like jump in front of them. But that number, 1.2 million, will fall off a cliff. And that's got to be a good thing. And on top of that, we will use our cities, our roads, our real estate much, much more effectively. It has many, many upsides. Yes, people like driving. And some people are going to say, I want to carry on driving my car. Well, I dare say there will be reservations where we can all go and drive a car to our own satisfaction. Jeremy Clarkson's never going to accept it, but hey-ho. All right. Now, one of your books is called The Economic Singularity, and you focus on the economic implications of this AI revolution. And to summarise, heroically, you think this is going to lead to mass unemployment. Can you talk us through the scenario of the book? Sure. Nothing is certain. Nobody has a crystal ball. We do not know what's going to happen in the future. But I think it's very likely that within a generation, 
machines will be able to do most of the things that humans could do for money, cheaper, better, and faster. Why do I think that? The technology is on an exponential growth curve. It's known as Moore's Law, and there's lots of fascinating debate about whether Moore's Law has finished or not. Bottom line, it hasn't. If you use Moore's Law to mean that machines are getting twice as powerful every 18 months or so, the chip industry is confident they've got another 10 years, and there are technologies coming along, memristors, neuromorphic chips, quantum computing, which will almost certainly extend its life to 20 and probably 30 years. So we're on this exponential growth curve. Now, that means the machines we have in 10 years' time will be 128 times more powerful than they are today. But being more powerful doesn't necessarily mean more capable. It's true that there isn't a necessary straight-line inference from more powerful to smarter, but that has been the experience, and there's so much effort going into taking advantage of the greater power that's available and to making our machines smarter that it's reasonable to assume that it's going to carry on. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's a very reasonable assumption. In 20 years' time, if the process continues, they'll be 8,000 times more powerful and probably smarter than they are today. And in 30 years' time, a million times smarter and more powerful. You know, we know we're on this exponential growth curve, but we always forget how powerful exponential growth is and how it's backloaded. So machines can already recognize faces better than we can. They're overtaking us in speech recognition, and they're catching up in natural language processing. So in a decade, two decades, they're just going to be able to do the things we do to make money better than us. That doesn't mean to say we become redundant as people, but we will probably become redundant as employees. So what we have to do is to figure out how a post-jobs world is a great world, which I believe it can be. I don't think everybody's going to be unemployed. I think most people will. And also it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be a slow build-up because machines have to be better than us at most things before any significant numbers of people become unemployed. It's a bit like boiling water. It's like sort of a phase change. They'll get better and better and better and better, and then there'll come a bit of a tipping point when they're better at so many things that there just aren't new jobs for us to go to when we lose our old jobs. So professional drivers will probably all be laid off in the next 15 years or so. And for a while, they'll go into retail, they'll go into call centers, they'll go into factories and warehouses, but the machines will get better and better at doing all the things in those areas And eventually, there's just nowhere else to go. All right. Before we get to the post-jobs future, I'd just like to test this hypothesis a bit more. And I was reading something the other day, which I was quite struck by. It was a computer expert who forecast that automation will destroy all routine jobs, lead to mass technological unemployment, and could produce machines that defy our wishes. We are heading, he wrote, to an industrial revolution of unmitigated cruelty. Do you want to hazard a guess as to who wrote those remarks and when? I'm sure you're going to tell me it was somebody in either 1970 or 1930 or maybe in the first Industrial Revolution. It was Norbert Wiener in 1949 who is regarded as the father of cybernetics. And he certainly was way ahead of his time in many regards. But do you think he was just premature in what he was saying? Or do you think that there is a cyclicality of this argument that every few generations we worry that mass automation is going to put us all out of jobs and then we realise that it doesn't because new jobs are created? So... There has been a cyclical tendency for people to fear massive widespread unemployment, and it hasn't happened yet. We're pretty much at full employment in the UK and the US. And Wiener's an interesting character. Apparently, he wasn't a terribly nice man. And if it wasn't for that, artificial intelligence would be called cybernetics. But the people who invented the science of AI gathered in a room, made sure he wasn't there, and gave it a different name. I think he was ahead of his time. 
Past rounds of automation have been mechanisation. So, you know, there are no horses working on farms anymore. And horses, those horses, they got dead, frankly. You know, they got very seriously made redundant. What we have coming, and it's only just beginning, is widespread cognitive automation. We've had some. So secretaries were very common when I started work. And now they're pretty much extinct because they got automated, if you like, by Microsoft Windows, Microsoft uh, Office and so on. Bank tellers have also largely been automated out of existence. But there are many job categories that those people could go into. It's important to note we didn't invent new jobs. Most people working today are doing jobs which existed in 1900. What we've done is we've expanded many of the existing categories of work. But when cognitive automation really takes hold, then those categories will be filled up with machines and we won't have any place in them. Now, I think where Wiener was definitely wrong is the idea that it has to be a cruel world of unemployment. I think it would be crazy if we have machines creating all this wealth and we can't somehow find a way to turn that into a great world where humans can get on with the important things in life, which are learning and playing and having adventures and having fun, while the machines do the jobs. That, that should be a great world. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Part of the argument counter to what you're saying is that we can see the jobs that are going to be destroyed, as you're saying, drivers are likely to have quite a short shelf life over the next two decades or so. But we are completely hopeless at trying to predict what are the jobs are going to be in the future. So there was a big McKinsey report came out the other day that, like you, was stressing that there's a very high probability the jobs in many fields are going to be automated away. But they were a lot more optimistic than you about the possibility of creating jobs in new areas. And Twitch, for example, we're now employing people to make video films about people watching computer games. Now, you, no one would have thought that that would have been a job that would have existed a few years ago. And Microsoft are now hiring what they call empathologists, which was not a job category in the Bureau of Labor Statistics a few years ago. So there are new unimagined forms of work that we are going to create for ourselves. Do you buy this argument? No. There is this idea that the magic jobs drawer will fly open and all these new jobs will pop out. And we can't tell you what they are now because the technologies that will enable them haven't yet been invented. That isn't what happened in the past. As I said earlier, 90% of people working today are doing jobs which existed in 1900. If you go down the list of the Bureau of Labor Statistics job, you have to go to about number 23 before you get to a new job. So user experience architects and web designers and so on. They're a tiny little froth on the top of the workforce. That may change. It may be that machines will enable us to create lots of new types of jobs. There's no particular reason to think that that will happen. And to rely on it happening so that we forget about planning for the consequences if it doesn't happen would be a very, very dangerous thing to do. Right. So let's assume that you're right. We are heading to a world of technological unemployment. What can we do about it? You're saying that we can restructure our societies to cope for this new world. What do you think needs to be done? So the solution that people tend to leap to is universal basic income, which is a nice idea. It's the idea that every citizen gets a, a basic income regardless of their needs as of right because they're a citizen. There's a fundamental problem with it, which is that it's basic. If all we can do when, say, half the population is unemployed is give them a basic income, then we have failed morally, but more importantly, society will collapse. 
it won't survive. So we have to do a lot better than that. And the only way to do better than that is to reduce the price of all the goods and services that you need for a very good standard of living down to close to zero. I don't think we should go all the way to zero because then you would lose the power of the market. The market is a terrific mechanism for resource allocation. But if we make everything very cheap, then the people who are still working, and I think until we get to superintelligence, some people will still be working, plus there'll be some people, mostly Google and Facebook, who own a lot of assets. We can tax those people without the taxes being punitive to pay for everybody else to have access to a really great standard of life and not to have to do jobs. I think people will always work. People will always have projects and schemes that they're working on that just won't get paid for them. And you think it's possible to fund that? I mean, I think the Cato Institute did a study of if you provide all Americans with a basic income of $12,000 a year, it costs you about $4 trillion, which is one heck of a lot of money. Yes, all the attempts to justify funding UBI in the current sort of economic circumstances are a bit of a fudge. The RSA has done it. There was quite a bit of work done on it in France at the time of the last election. But they've missed the connection, which is that if you reduce the price of all the goods and services close to zero, then it is affordable, not universal basic income. Actually, I think the other problem with UBI is that it's universal. If we have, say, a society in which three quarters of humans are not doing jobs, but one quarter are, why on earth would you pay a UBI to the quarter that are? They will presumably be earning very good livings. So is it achievable to drive the costs down so low. And I think it is. And I think if you look at a few sectors one by one, you can see how it can happen. As I said earlier, it wasn't previously at all affordable to have access to all the music that you might ever want to listen to. And now it's £10 a month. And then take the transportation sector. So at the moment, taxis, for instance, have human drivers, expensive. They are powered by internal combustion engines, which got lots of moving parts, little explosions going on all over the place. And the fuel is expensive. Convert them all to electric make the electricity nearly free, which, because of the sharply declining cost in solar-generated electricity, it will be in 20 to 30 years. It is not cost-competitive at the moment, despite what the Greens tell us, but it will be. So if you have cars all self-driven and electric and powered by nearly free electricity, transportation could become really, really cheap. There is a an agricultural college in the UK which has tilled, sown, cultivated and harvested a crop without any human intervention. So again, agriculture, food production could become very, very cheap. I think it's doable, but here's the thing. We need a plan for how we're going to get from here to there. And the reason why we need a plan is A, so that we can do it, but more importantly, so we can reassure everybody that it's going to happen. Because somewhere in the next 10 years, everybody's going to wake up to what's happening. I mean, the subtitle of your book is Artificial Intelligence and the Death of Capitalism, which is a pretty bold statement but you think that the world that we're moving into is more kind of matching supply and demand without necessarily the market acting as an intermediating function, do you? No, I think the world we've been talking about so far where you have, say, three quarters of humans not employed but living a very good standard of living paid for by taxes on those who are still working and those who have assets, that's not, in my mind, the end of capitalism because I do think we can retain the market at that point and therefore retain the excellent resource allocation distribution mechanism that it provides. But then there's a later phase when that world has stabilised. You then have three quarters of the population earning or receiving very much the same income and living a very egalitarian life. But there's this other group who are still working or who have lots of assets. And because technology hasn't slowed down, 
they start to drift apart because the previously very effective mechanism for disseminating technology, you know, the smartphones are 10 years old and now there are more smartphones in Uganda than light bulbs, apparently. It's accelerating so fast that there just isn't time to disseminate it so that the wealthier people, they speciate, they become quite different. And we know from history that when you have two groups of people which are very different, the weaker group doesn't tend to do very well. So where is this plan going to come from? You're talking about a different species of ultra-wealthy who are clearly not going to be too interested in pushing forward a plan. You've got governments at the moment in this country who are obsessed by Brexit. In America, they want to build walls or obsessing about Rocket Man in North Korea. In Europe, we're worrying about the invasion of technology, the erosion of privacy. Who is going to come up with this societal plan if we can't rely on either the people who are driving the revolution or the governments? Yeah, good question. And I ask myself that a lot. So the plan is necessary to reassure everybody that we can head to what I call and other people call the Star Trek economy, which is this economy in which the goods and services are very, very cheap. And therefore, everybody can have a great life, even if they're not working. And we need to have that plan in place before the panic happens, which is when everybody realizes what's happening and start selling their homes, start voting for truly appalling politicians. You know, that panic could be seriously damaging. Who is going to develop that plan? Well, I talk about this to all sorts of audiences, and I find that business audiences are very receptive. I think business people, because they're very aware of the fact that AI is going to transform their businesses, they're awake to this. And so they get it. Politicians are not. As you say, in this country, the political class has been swallowed whole by Brexit, and there's that circus going on in America. But there are signs that some politicians are waking up. Hillary Clinton's been talking about this recently. Obama did. Even Ted Cruz, amazingly enough, put his name to a document which referred to it. The Democratic governor for the California elections, Gavin Newsom, has talked about it being very important. So in America, which is kind of where you'd expect people to be more open to these ideas, there is some sign of understanding that big changes are coming. But I think It doesn't really matter, in a sense, who starts the think tanks and the research institutes, which I think are necessary to create the plan. If it's companies, great. If it's philanthropic individuals, great. If it's governments, and it probably should be governments because they'll have a big role in implementing it, then great. But they're probably going to need to be chivied along by the rest of us. So the way I see this working is there's a debate starting. There's a lot of talk in the papers already about technological unemployment, but it's a bit unfocused and it's early days. As it evolves... And if I'm right, as people move in this direction, we will start demanding of our politicians that they take it seriously and take steps to develop this plan. And we have to get a move on because if the panic is coming in the next 10 years, you know, it could easily take five years or more to develop a plan and develop a consensus that the plan is the right plan and make it really robust so that it does reassure people when the panic might otherwise arrive. The one thing we can be certain of is that history doesn't move in straight lines. And you alluded earlier to the fact that we could see a further upsurge of populism and some truly appalling politicians. Don't you think that process in itself will put a massive break on the rapid adoption of some of these technologies? Well, it could do, but probably only in countries where there is virtual societal collapse. And I think that may well happen in some jurisdictions, and we should try to minimise the number of places where that happens. Technology doesn't in itself want anything, but there is a logic to technology. If a tool is invented or a process invented which answers a real human need, then it will get adopted. There's no way to stop it. And if it's economically powerful, it will get adopted. And jurisdictions which try to stop it will simply become very uneconomic. So no doubt some jurisdictions will say, we don't want 
driverless cars because they'll render all our professional drivers redundant. India has talked about doing that, although they've left a big back door to reverse the option if they want to. But any country which did, say, no self-driving cars here, would find their transportation sector very uneconomic and it would put them at a huge disadvantage. Fairly quickly, they'd have to change tack. So in a nutshell, really, you're saying that technology at the moment is being driven wholly by the market and we need to have a lot more societal input into the direction in which we're moving. I think slightly the other way around. I think economics tends to be driven by technology. So people invent something, it's got an application, it gets adopted, and that changes the economy. But absolutely, yes, I think as a society we need to become increasingly aware of what's happening and take steps to make sure we get the really, really good outcomes that we could have. Thank you very much, Callum. That's both a very exhilarating and terrifying message at the same time. Thanks. Thank you. We're taking a short break. But we'll be back early in the new year with more interviews and discussions exploring the impact of technology on our lives. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.